Last week we were in James 2. This week we're still in James 2. Uh, but James is going to change the topic a little bit. Uh, from the first chapter to probably the beginning of James 2, James has pulled out his little ball-peen hammer, and he's kind of been hammering on us. Uh, but he was a carpenter, and this week he is bringing out the bigger hammer. So he is going to hammer on us pretty good this week. So I'm just giving you a heads up that this is probably not going to make you feel great about yourself, but it is going to edify. So I'll leave it with that. Um, this week, James is going to show us that faith is accompanied by works. If you remember, the first 13 verses in chapter 2 talked about loving faith. And verses 14 through 26 this week, we'll talk about living faith. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Let's say you go to the nursery where you buy plants, that kind of nursery, and you pick up a fruit tree. You bring it home. You plant it in the backyard. You take care of it. You water it. Maybe you decide to fertilize it. And eventually, if it is well taken care of, it will give you fruit, whatever kind of fruit it bears. And there's really nothing you can do to make it bear that fruit. It just happens on its own if it's well taken care of. There's, there's only so much that you can actually focus on to make that tree grow fruit. You water it. And that's really all it is. And what good will it do if you focus on trying to make the fruit grow instead of focusing on taking care of the tree itself? What if you neglect to water it because you're so concerned about trying to make it bear its fruit? We can't sit around straining to bear fruit from our walk with Christ either. The fruit of the Spirit is love. If I just absolutely hate people, and I recognize that, and I think to myself, and I really need to work on this loving thing, and I just focus on loving, how much good is that actually going to do me? It's good to realize what we need to work on, but at the same time, we need to focus the majority of our efforts on just watering, planting ourselves in Christ, and the fruit, the increase, will, be, uh, will come to fruition. If I take care of my relationship with Christ, the fruit will come naturally as a byproduct of that relationship. And I think this illustration helps us to understand James' thought here. You can't have the fruit before the tree. There absolutely has to be a tree before it bears you fruit. Our works are not for salvation, but they're sprouting from our salvation and our continued walk with Christ. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, 
if it does not have works, is dead. Martin Luther felt that James should not be included in the New Testament. He thought that it was too legalistic. He thought that James did not agree with authors like Paul, for instance. But James says, if the Gentiles just stay away from idolatry and immorality, they'll be fine. And there is no legalism in that. Remember that James led the church in Jerusalem. He was appointed their leader, old camel needs, praying so often that he developed calluses on his knees. Uh, That's where the term old camel knees came from. His knees were knotted up like a camel's. But most importantly, we are looking through the eyes of a man who grew up beside Jesus Christ as his half-brother. Now, Paul writes in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. In 2 Corinthians, he mentions that we walk by faith, not by sight. Walking indicates activity. Walking is an action. Ephesians 2.8, also written by Paul, reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In this passage that I just read, there are two uses of the word ergon, which is translated works. The first, um, in it is the gift of God, not of works, is talking about the works of the law, the the fleshly impulses, um, the working of our flesh for salvation. That is not how we obtain salvation. Now, the second usage of this word ergon is created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is now talking about the outflow of our salvation. He is not in in any way contradicting what James is telling us here. The true faith that leads to repentance has an outflow of works. It is active and it is alive. I'd like to read the Wiest translation of verse 14, and that reads, What profit is there, my brethren, if a person is saying, I am in possession of faith, and he is not in possession of works? The aforementioned faith, namely that faith which does not result in good works, is not able to save him, is it? In other words, the so-called faith that is not accompanied by works isn't actually faith at all. It's empty words. Genuine faith is active. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And again, James is giving us a principle and then backing it up with an illustration. 
an example. 1 John 3, 17 through 19 reads, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, we are of, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So we see in this little passage from 1 John, love is an indication that we are of the truth. John uses this example of providing for the needs of others as an example of uh, faith. Is this faith working through love? Remember, faith working through love is exactly what Paul wrote in Galatians 5.6. These men agreed on the principle of faith. They each focused on slightly different aspects of it, but they all agreed on faith. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. This is a challenge coming from James. He says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. He would have watched Jesus in his ministry. Going around healing, feeding, serving, and just caring for people. He didn't just teach. Jesus was active in his ministry. That's exactly what Jesus wants of us. We should be active in the areas that he's called us to. Have you been blessed musically? Use that to serve God. Have you been blessed with the gift of hospitality? That's great. Use that to serve God. Have you been blessed monetarily? Do you have more than you need? Use that to serve. In whatever capacity you've been called to be active in, be active. Let that outflow of your salvation prove your faith. Show me your faith without your works. This is impossible. You cannot show your faith without works. The only way faith can be expressed in the Christian life is by practical, loving obedience to the word of God. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You can believe that there is a God, but there's a difference between that and believing in God. The demons, the devil, Satan, know God is real. They know that for a fact, but they are certainly not saved. You see, knowledge by itself does not save. Knowledge is the starting point, but we must place our faith in him for salvation. Just because you come sit in church doesn't make you a Christian. 
Just like if I go stand in the garage, that doesn't make me a car. There has to be something on the inside that changes. You can be in church your whole life, but until you place your faith in Christ Jesus, you are not a Christian. Matthew 28, I'm sorry, Matthew 8, verse 29, tells the story of a demon-possessed man, and he is healed. And Acts 16, 17, the demon-possessed girl followed Paul and them around, and it's interesting what this demon-possessed girl says. She follows them around saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, this is actually the demon speaking through this little girl. And this is what they say, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. They knew what was happening. There's no doubt in their minds. And they are terrified. Matthew 8, 29 that I just mentioned Um, the demon that was possessing this man cries out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They knew who Jesus was and they were terrified of him. But still, this knowledge does not save them. Verse 20, but do you know But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Abraham proved his faith was real by his works. His obedience to God proved his faith in God. His faith was made perfect or brought to maturity in his act of obedience. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This comes from Genesis 15, 6. That's where James is quoting that. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. 25, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So Rahab is our second example that James gives us from the Old Testament. She didn't even believe in the God of the Israelites until they were about to make their siege on the city. But her newfound faith was demonstrated when she took in the spies and she sent them out um, a different way outside of harm. This is how Rahab justified her faith. She demonstrated her faith in her works, in her actions. Verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now the whole matter of faith and works is summed up 
in that verse that I read earlier, Ephesians 2, 8, um, actually through verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. First, we see what God does for us. That is salvation. Second, we see the work that God does to us, which is our sanctification. Number three, we see the work that God does through us. Four, two, and through. This is the complete um, idea of faith and works. The work of God um, is salvation for us. For by grace you have been saved, not of works. The work God does to us is our sanctification. He says, for we are his workmanship. The work that God does through us is our service to others, our actions. We were created for good works. Now, as we dive into James 3, um, he's already told us that we can identify mature Christians by their attitude towards suffering. That was chapter 1. And by their obedience to the word of God. That's chapter 2. And now in chapter 3, James is going to tell us that a Christian's speech is another test of maturity. You can tell what kind of tree it is by the fruit that it bears. And again, we will see a principle followed by several examples. Verse 1 of chapter 3, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now apparently there was some kind of rivalry in the assemblies over who would get to teach in the early church. So James warns these guys that whoever the lucky winner is, is actually asking for a stricter judgment from God. Um, And that's sobering for us. It's not quite as enticing to them anymore. Um, We think of being a teacher as some high position. Uh, But in God's economy, the pyramid of power is flipped upside down. See, all of y'all are my boss. And Christ is the head of the church. I'm at the very bottom. And that is truly how it is. Um, And you see these guys getting into quarrels over who is going to be teaching. Everybody wants that spot behind the podium. But really what it is, is leading to a stricter judgment from God. Um, And that's not something that everyone wants to take on themselves. You see, if I don't have my heart right on a Sunday morning, if I didn't take the time to study out this passage that we're looking at, that's coming back on me. That's not coming back on anyone else. If there are 50 of you here and I waste your one hour on Sunday mornings, I've wasted 50 hours of God's time with one hour of my time. I don't like those odds. There's a very real responsibility here. There's a 
very real responsibility that comes with teaching. And that is in any capacity. It doesn't have to be up here. If you're teaching the little kids in Sunday school, that is a great responsibility. You have such a big influence in the direction of their lives. And it's so important that we start them off on the right path when they're young. Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever live, said, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let us take care in feeding the flock of God. Verse two, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Interesting words there. That is to say that none of us have completely figured out how to control our tongue. We know none of us are perfect or complete this side of heaven. And I certainly have a ways to go in this area myself. Um, Just last week, I popped off and made Summer mad. If you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have that instant of inhibition. And you say something not even knowing what you're saying. And it turns out to not be so great, right? And the ramifications of that can last for days or weeks or in some cases years. Um, And it's just not a good deal altogether. That's why it's so important that we keep our tongues in check. Perfect here means already complete, brought to its end, finished. And this is something that none of us can say we are this side of heaven. He says, also able to bridle the whole body. If you can control your tongue, you'll have no problem controlling the rest of your body. As Christians, we couldn't imagine killing someone. But for some reason or another, we have no problem using our words as a knife in someone's back. Why is that? If you learn to bridle your tongue, you can control your whole body as well. Verse 3, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Now, James is starting here to list off this list of six examples of how powerful the tongue is. And he's going to group them into pairs to illustrate various points. The first and second example are going to illustrate the power the tongue has to direct, direct our walk. The bit in the horse's mouth and the rudder in the ship. Examples three and four is going to demonstrate its power to destroy like a fire and like a wild animal. Examples five and six are going to illustrate the tongue's power to delight. He uses the fountain or a spring and the fig tree to illustrate this point. Back to verse 3, he says, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Now, horses were seen as symbols of great power at this time. 
And they were a powerful, powerful force on the battlefield um, and for chores. And they were recognized as one of the most powerful animals. Yet, man can control the whole horse by placing a bit in its mouth. A small piece of metal in the mouth controls the whole animal. The mouth of the horse directs its body even as our mouth directs our body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Ships can be huge. Um, if you've ever been on a cruise ship, you know those things are massive. Uh, but still, they can be steered with a very small rudder. Even the massive cruise ships are told where to go by the captain using this relatively small rudder and are driven by fierce winds. So even in the midst of severe weather at sea, the ship is steered with this rudder. Being tossed every which way, the rudder is still the most important piece in steering that huge ship. It literally determines the direction that the whole cruise takes. There will be times when we are tossed about on seas, uh, raging winds. He says here, fierce winds. There are times when you're going to feel like little dinghy out on the sea being tossed. Um, even that little dinghy has a rudder that will steer it. And it's even more difficult to control your tongue when you're mounting under a high-pressure situation, when you're being faced with a, a fire, so to speak, when you're being faced with trials that James talks about in chapter 1. But it is no less important that we keep our speech in check and in line with our actions. In fact, it may be more important that you keep your speech in check when you're going through those trials. Because I will tell you this, there are unbelievers and there are new believers who are watching how you handle every situation. If you let your tongue go, you come unhinged. They're going to see that and they're going to take note of that. So when you are mounting under pressure, it's so important that we keep the tongue under control. Even in the storm, our tongue determines our direction. The second half of verse 5, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. This is demonstrating the power of the tongue to destroy. And this first example he gives is a fire. We've seen several fires lately break out all across Texas. And it's remarkable the amount of devastation that one lit cigarette can cause. You know, it can spread into just such a vast uh, area. 
and it destroys everything that it touches. And this illustration, I think, can hit too close to home for many of us, the fires. Solomon, again, says, an ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. So this illustration of the tongue, our words, as a fire, is nothing new. Um, Solomon talked about it way back when. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. James says that our tongue is a fire. What does fire do? Well, one of its functions is to destroy, but it also can cook us a really nice meal. And it can harden steel for our use. When used correctly, fire can be very beneficial to us. In the same way that our tongue can be both used to bless God and to curse men. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Uh, Back up to verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Peter now compares the tongue to a ravenous, poisonous beast. The beast also has the power to destroy, in illustrating his point here. He says, no man can tame the tongue like he's tamed other wild beasts. And we have tamed everything. You know, Shamu, the cobras, you play a flute for them and they raise up out of the basket. We have zoos filled with wild animals. Cattle. I'm thankful for cattle. They make some great meals for us. But we have tamed so much, yet we still can't seem to tame our tongues. That's a testament to how difficult it actually is. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. I've got an uncle who used to love catching rattlesnakes. Yes, that is crazy. Uh, He's a wild man. Uh, But he enjoyed this. I think he enjoyed the adrenaline rush. But these things can seriously hurt you. Uh, If you get bit by one, you're in bad shape. And one time when he was out with his friends at his deer lease, they were catching some rattlesnakes, and he did slip up, and one bit him on the thumb. And he was rushed to the hospital. I believe he was care flighted. And they did manage to save his life and his thumb. Uh, But that is a really bad situation to be in. And whenever you are handling these things that are poisonous, you you have to take the utmost care. You have to pay the utmost attention to what you're doing. Because one small little slip up, like I said earlier, You say something off the chain to your wife, you know, the tongue is full of deadly poison and it will bite you. We have to take great care when dealing with both rattlesnakes and our tongues. Verse 9, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men 
who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. With the same tongue, we praise God and we curse men. Even though men were created in the image of the God we are praising, it's paradoxical to praise the creator and curse those he created to be like him. But there's a problem with this. There's a problem with speaking one thing and doing another. It's an indication that there's something wrong with the heart when our words are inconsistent. When we praise God in one breath and we curse men in another. Here's something you can remember when talking about people. Gossip is when we say something behind their back that we would never say to their face. And flattery is saying something to their face that we would never say behind their back. Gossip and flattery are both irresponsible uses of the tongue. And they're both on opposite ends of the spectrum. The truth in love is somewhere in the middle. And as Christians, we are instructed to speak the truth in love. Not to go too far to one side, talking about people behind their backs, not to go too far to the other side, just buttering up with anything you got, but the truth in love. I'm sure you all remember Peter, the winner of the Foot and Mouth Award. Jesus asked Peter who Peter thought he was, and Peter replied well. In Matthew 16, 15, and 16, we have an account of this. He said to them, this is Jesus speaking, but who do you say that I am? Peter, being the loudmouth that he is, spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And right after this, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You, I will give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Peter did great. Awesome. A few moments later, look what happens. Jesus was showing his disciples that he must go into Jerusalem to suffer, to be killed, and to be raised on the third day. And Matthew 16, 22 through 23, just a few verses before what we just read, or after what we just read. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you, speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. In one breath, Peter said one of the most profound things that we can come to know as human beings, that Jesus is the Son of God. And in the next, the enemy was speaking through him. The two extremes of the tongue. You know what? 
that gives me hope because I can see myself in Peter there. One moment we're praising God, one moment we're cursing men. And that is not how it should be. Verse 11, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Solomon also says, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. It's this idea of our words uh, coming forth as a fountain or as a spring. Of course, the same spring can't give you both fresh and salt water. It just doesn't happen. The source of that spring must be one or the other. And we can tell a lot about the source of that spring by what kind of water flows in it. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Now, he uses the tree as his last example uh, to demonstrate the blessings that our words can have. A tree can only produce one kind of fruit. A fig tree isn't going to give you an olive. And how do you determine what kind of tree you just brought home from the nursery? The tag on it may be incorrect. But one thing that is sure to tell you the type of tree is its fruit. If you go home, you plant it in a few years, if you've watered it, taken care of it, it bears you fruit, you get home and you see that that was an apple tree, well, you can tell that because it gives you apples. A grapevine isn't going to give you apples. Again, Solomon. What can I say? He was wise. He says a lot about the tongue. He says, a man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips, he shall be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. That comes from Proverbs 18, 20, and 21. Now, after these six examples, we must realize the power of our tongues. And we must not permit the enemy to use our tongue. We have to keep a close guard on what we say. Um, It's not something that can be emotionally driven. You should not allow your emotions to take your tongue. Uh, But speak the truth in love. And it's easy to say from up here. It really is. But it's so much harder to live it, to do it. Don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. Don't stop at hearing. Don't stop there, but press on to maturity. Press on to completeness. Press on to actually apply the things that you learn from scripture. And as we go into this next week, let this prayer be the prayer of our hearts. Uh, This comes from David in Psalm 141, 1 through 4. David says, Lord, I cry out to you. 
make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. And do not let me eat of their delicacies. What a fitting way to end our study this morning. Keep watch over the door of my lips. As we do close, let's do so in a word of prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.